Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi everybody, thank you for listening to The Rack again. Today, probably most special rack we've had, and we've had some special ones, but today we've got three people who are involved in what I consider to be the greatest moments in our rugby history. We've got, as usual, Lawrence Tenaglio, England's Rugby World Cup winner in 2003, and two men involved in the other great days, the amazing victory of the British Lions over New Zealand in 1971. We've been celebrating that over the weekend in the Times and the Sunday Times, uh, particularly in the sense of what that uh, victory did for the whole sport. It's a great thrill to welcome John Taylor, one of the greatest Welsh flankers, played in three tests in that 71 crusade, 26 caps for Wales, went on to be a great colleague in the media, rugby correspondent of the Mail on Sunday, and lead commentator for ITV, in five Rugby World Cups, JT? Yes, five Rugby World Cups with ITV, one with TalkSport. Six altogether. He also kicked one of the most famous conversions ever, which won the Wales-Scotland match in 1971, right at the death. Uh, JT was there with his hirsute hairstyle of the time, kicking left-footed from wide <laughs> out. He put it over, it was described as the greatest conversion since St Paul. Uh, JT, I know you're recovering from a hip uh, surgery. Scottish fans will want to know, was the surgery on your kicking leg? <laughs> it wasn't on the kicking leg, Steve, no. It was on the other one, the one I stood on. I had already had the knee done, so something must have been awry there. Just one correction, I've got to do it. I did actually play in all four tests. I was initially dropped for the third test. But uh, I played all four tests because Fergus Slattery, who had been picked in front of me for the third test, got flu. And then I had such a brilliant game, they couldn't drop me for the last one. Absolutely. That's what you've always said. <laughs> Funny, Slattery never agreed with that. But no, I'm terribly sorry. We will now upgrade you to four tests. And one other thing on a serious note, condolences on uh, the recent death of the tour captain, John Dawes. JT, you and, uh, uh, and he always remain close. And I think you're taking over from um, from Sid now as president of London Welsh. Indeed, I am. Yeah. Well, it's also wonderful to welcome David Duckham, and we're not going to spare your blushes. David was one of England's all-time greats, a brilliant attacking runner, absolute darling of the crowds wherever he went. And if you'd seen him play in the famous Barbarians and New Zealand match, you'd agree. But also many more big games all around the world. And Fran Cotton, a denizen of Coventry, uh, like David once said if he had played in the professional era, he would have been a superstar. David, uh, were you happy with the era you played in or 
would you have liked to have trained every day and bulked up to about 18 stone? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I played when I did, really. And I've talked to many contemporaries about, about whether we could have survived in the modern game. I suppose you, you've got to grow up in the modern game to, to be play like today's players. Now, I was very happy playing as an amateur. Help me keep my feet on the ground because, you know, uh, I became anonymous on the Monday morning uh, going to do a job of work just like everybody else. And, uh, mm. you know, it just kept, get, kept me w- with a sense of p- perspective about what sport is really about and what the rest of your life it is because that will carry on, whereas sport, of course, will end at some point. So, yeah, I was, I was very happy to play in the era I did. I'd love to have been part of a more successful England team. That's all I yeah. would say. I, yeah, they, they never quite got it right when you were playing for England, did they? Those seemed to be different halfbacks, etc. Well, d- dear old Gareth, Sir Gareth Edwards uh, will say that he played against uh, something like 18 different England halfback combinations yeah. during his international career, which says a lot about, you know, inconsistencies in England selection. Sure. <laughs> Don't laugh, Baz, it, was, it wasn't funny. i <laughs> <laughs> no, sure. Lawrence, um, you... you when you became involved as, as a youngster in the sport and showing promise as a player, did you come become aware of this tour? Because it was a world-shattering thing for, you know, those of us who are older people. First of all, I mean, I'd, I'd read an enormous amount about the Lions because uh, I, I had a friend of mine who, who kept sending me all these books. From, he, was, he had a second-hand bookshop and he would send me all these books about all the great tours and any, anything to do with rugby, he'd send my way. So, I, so I'd read all about it and, you know, about Carwin James and being the first coach to, to be picked as a, as a Lions coach and, and all these wonderful players that, that, that played on it. So, yeah, so I very much knew, knew and understood that and, and obviously realised the enormity of what it meant to actually win a, a Test Series in New Zealand uh, and, and subsequently in South Africa because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you can achieve a lot of things in rugby and, and our, our esteemed colleagues have done all of that and more. But, um, you know, to win a test match, let alone a test series in, in either New Zealand or South Africa really is, is the pinnacle of, of what well, is the hardest thing to do. So by, by that you would suggest that it's, it's one of the be- one of the best things you can ever do collectively because, you know, rugby is like religion in both of those countries. It's, it's bigger than football, really. It, it's just a huge thing to do. So I was very aware of it and, and uh, I'm very aware of what, what the Lions meant, you know, when I, when I, when I got picked, obviously, a few years later in 97 and and to be honest these two would have been giants in the professional era because players just adapt so that's the way it is I mean I was very lucky I, I trained like I, what, what I thought was like a professional and I socialised still like an amateur rugby player so I sort of had the, be- had the best of both worlds really and uh, well, I was going to ask you that Lawrence I mean, this match was 26 match programme roaming all over Australia and New Zealand but they still had a few drinks. It actually sounds more your sort of tour than the tours they have now. Well, I mean, it's I mean, one of the great things. I mean, listen, any rugby player hopefully would 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 agree forward, back, any you know, no matter what country they're from. That the great thing, one of the great things about rugby is touring, and uh, and you either like it or you don't. And I mean, the, the thought of going away for for such a long time now would would terrify the modern day rugby players because they're just so not not used to it. You know, sort of in and out is the kind of. Uh, the order of the day, but the, the thought of going away for three months with your mates and having a fantastic time playing rugby at every single opportunity sounds like heaven to me. Can I ask you both, uh, JT and David, um, you know, the Lions had never won there ne- and actually had never really come close to it. The last time they went before you, they lost 4-0 rather embarrassingly. 
when you went over there, John, in your heart, did you think you had a chance because it had never been done? Uh, I think we we did in the sense that, um, particularly the Welsh contingent, you know, we had a strong side for the previous couple of years. Yeah. And we had been down there in 1969 on a ridiculous tour. I mean, it was stupid in that it was so short. We never had a chance to acclimatise before the first game. I think my first game of rugby actually there was a test match against the, the All Blacks because <laughs> they thought it was a good idea to rest me for the first game or the other flanker who we took down wouldn't have got a game and all this sort of thing. But we, we got well beaten, 19-point defeats twice against New Zealand. We did beat Australia. The biggest thing about it really was we had got point by 71 where we won a Grand Slam and we thought if we're going to be any good, really, we've got to prove ourselves in the, in the Southern Hemisphere. That's what it was all about. And certainly with people like Gareth, Barry, John, Merv and JPR had joined the, the Welsh squad since then. Then to get Duckers, Mike Gibson, players like this involved, Willie John, of course, the Evergreen. And there was a determination that if we were to have left any sort of mark on uh, rugby and call ourselves a good side, to be able to call ourselves a good side, we really had to prove ourselves down there. So I think, uh, you know, we, we thought we had a chance till we got to Australia and lost the first game. <laughs> I'm playing that one. I've got, to, I've got to hasten to add Duckers. <laughs> but it, you know, once, once we got going, there was a momentum building and you did feel there was something special. Okay. D D David, uh, you went down and, you, as you said, you didn't have a, a, a sort of um, a succession of wins behind you as an England player. Did you share the growing confidence or did you think, bloody hell, you know, the All Blacks away? JT will remember this. When we assembled in London, first of all, under a, a, a delightful manager, Dr. Doug Smith, he, ad he addressed us and said, boys, we are going to win this test series 2-1 uh, and there'll be one draw. <laughs> and I thought to myself, um, yeah, and pigs will fly. Um, but not really appreciating, uh, believe it or not, because I was a bit naive in those days, that actually the Lions had never won a series over there. So, I, I mean, I soon found out and I soon realised what the game means to New Zealanders. So it was, mm -hmm. JT rightly said, it was for me, people like me, youngster, I was pretty young, not the youngest in the squad, but very nearly. You know, it was more like an adventure to be away for, you know, nearly four months. Um, I'd only been married nine months and then was then away for the next four. So it felt a bit strange in many, in many ways. Mm. But um, the, fe the fellowship and camaraderie was just unbelievable. What about you, David, uh, in terms of winning a test place? Because you look at the four wings there. Alistair Bigger was a, was a great player. John Bevan was uh, at the start of the tour was absolutely unstoppable. Then there was yourself and Gerald Davis. So anyone in, in on the wing positions who won a place in any test match must have been going really well. Well, the interesting thing was ahead of the tour, um, not many people remember this. I played three seasons with England and I played as a centre then alongside yeah. uh, my good pal, John Spencer. We were the centre partnership for three whole seasons. And John was picked on the tour as well. But I was picked as a wing as opposed to a centre. 
And that did bother me to start with because I knew what I was up against. There was no way any of the rest of us were going to displace Gerald Davis, um, the best in the UK and probably the best I've ever seen. Mm. Um, uh, he was always going to be uh, commanding a test place. So it was a battle between the rest of us. But as you rightly say, Bev, as we called him, John Bevan, played exceptionally well in the first quarter of the tour, scoring tries left, right and centre. Yeah. One game demonstrated that. And JT, you'll remember this. And we played Wellington, who were the Ranfurly shield, shield holders at the time, provincial champions, in other words. And they said, wait till you come to, you won't, you won't beat Wellington, windy Wellington. Well, we hammered them 47 points to nine, scored about nine tries. And John Bevan scored four of those. Mm. I thought, well, that's the end of my test place. <laughs> but no, so to be fair, I was playing, I thought I was playing well, but I never actually expected to get into the first first test John Bevan was always going to be picked ahead of me because he was playing very well mm. he was the youngest guy on the tour youngest player on the tour but after that his his um try scoring dried up a bit and he started to lose his confidence I think that's fair to say Baz I'm, I managed to oust him I scored six tries in one game which that helped. probably helped <laughs> yes. standing in once again for the injured John Spencer who should have been playing scored six uh, and I think that probably helped me. But, um, yeah, and I remember getting in the lift after the first test. We had a team meeting. I got into the lift to go back to my room. And in, in with me was uh, Ray McLaughlin, the great Irishman, who'd been, been there in 1966 with the Lions, New Zealand. And he turned to me. He never said a great deal at the best of times. But he turned to me and said, David, you'll be disappointed about uh, today's selection. Don't worry. Bide your time. It'll happen. I shall always remember him saying that. Yeah. Uh, okay. And he was right. Lawrence, um, you were, um, I was going to say, uh, what are your memories of, uh, of um, uh, being up against one player for one position? But I don't think it happened an awful lot with you, but I wouldn't have thought you became bosom buddies, whoever it was. But were you, was there ever a one-on-one for a position like JT and, um, and David in your career? Absolutely. I mean, we, 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 no one, none of us ever, ever take any selection for granted. I mean, I went on my first Lions tour age 24, uh, which was, which I guess his timing is, is everything, isn't it? I mean, I, I just couldn't believe my luck. I, you know, you're, you're 24 years old, you're going to South Africa. The thing about the Lions, which makes it so special and, and quite a challenge, I guess, for, for all of us, um, is that we're all used to being a number one. We're all used to being picked in our, in our respective countries as, as the number one choice, hopefully. And therefore, you know, every single player on the tour is a, is a fantastic rugby player and, and you know, more often a fantastic human being as well. So it, it is special. And I think you, you get that sense the minute you arrive on tour. And I'm sure, I don't, you know, I mean, it sounds like, like a fantastic experience in, in 71. I mean, 24 games of rugby, you know, or whatever it was. I mean, probably more, actually. That is, 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 incredi- is an incredible number. So, I mean... I did notice in '97 when 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 we landed in in South Africa, and obviously we couldn't have had two better um, men in charge in, in in Fran Cotton and Ian McGeekin, who obviously the guys will know very well. Mm. Um, and I found myself rooming with with my with my opposite number, Rob Wainwright, a guy that I was in sort of in direct competition with for the first week, which I thought was quite extraordinary, really. So obviously. We had to be sort of we had to pretend to be really nice to each other for the first week, <laughs> but clearly, clearly that was never going to happen. So uh, no, I think it's a wonderful concept, and it, and it's what creates the uniqueness of the Lions, really, um, because you will have ups and downs throughout the trip. You will have, 
moments of, 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 uh, of that, that are just truly special and moments of magic. And then, and then you, you know, you do have the odd setback as well. And it's how you kind of stick together and pull through that against all the odds. Cause let's face it, everything about a Lions tour is set up to fail. I mean, I couldn't resist remembering, you know, John JT, you know, was, was, was saying that I think they, they had to stop five times on the way to New Zealand and that was just to refuel. So, I mean, can you imagine? what sort of state they'd have arrived in once they landed. I mean, crikey. The Kiwis, uh, we've always found them odd hosts whenever we've, any of us have been down there. What were they like on that trip? The Kiwi fans were hilarious because uh, whatever you did, it was always you wait till you get to Wanganui, you wait till <laughs> you get to Papakura, you wait till you get to Rotorua. And whoever you beat on the way, I mean... You're in the situation where you, you've beaten their best and you really sort of thought you deserved a bit of respect. And all it was, ah, you wait till you get a Hawks Bay. What did they and say at the end of the fourth test? Wait till you come back next time. <laughs> well, by that stage, uh, we didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> David, um, the, Sorry, the six, six tries in one game is a heck of a thing. If I said to you now, do you remember all six in your head, would you? Well, I do vaguely. Once again, of the 26 games on the tour, uh, I paid 17. Only um, our skipper, Sid Dawes, was ahead of me. Uh, or I didn't think about uh, how many I was playing at the time. But a number of games, I came, I came on as a late replacement. Uh, not, not during the game, but before, because of injuries to other players. John Spencer, I, I um, played uh, in his place twice. And one of those was the game against, I think it was called West Coast Buller, the provincial team we played, where I scored the six. Instead of playing on the left wing, I was playing on the right. Um, I played a lot of my international rugby on the right wing. Um, the Barbarians game in 73 was a good example of that too. Mm-hmm. Um, I scored all six tries. What I remember is I scored all six tries quite a way out. Uh, at the fullback, it wasn't JPR that day, it was Bob Hiller. And to demonstrate the extent of his contribution to the tour, um, Barry John absolutely blew away the uh, uh, point-scoring record from previous Lions tours. But Bob Hiller also beat the previous record. Yeah, yeah. That was the extent of his contribution. Yeah. Anyway, so and Bob was a real was a real comedian as well. So I sc- it just happened that for the first three tries, I scored them way out near the corner. Uh, and then the fourth one, um, I, w- I could have put the ball down about midway between the post and the and the corner flag, but instead I, I I turned I turned and quite deliberately went and popped the ball down in the corner, and I turned to Bob Hiller and said, "Kick that!" And <laughs> literally I did, and the, the same for the other two. Um, so all six tries I'd scored in the corner. But he he converted every single one. Yeah, it was unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah. No one else in the squad, not even BJ, could have could have done that. Mm. He, he converted all six. We, we have. Um, I just wonder whether what Lawrence would have thought about what used to happen then, because you you're coming along strongly. You you won that game against Wellington, then you beat Otago, which was another big game, and you're coming strong, and then you run into Canterbury before the Test match. That, that there was continuous punching in almost every scrum. It became, in my opinion, the most infamous ever. Before we ask for your reminiscences on that, I just wonder whether 
Lawrence, if you if you see things like that now, I mean, we we think that our game now is can be not dirty, but can be a little bit dangerous, and there's the odd punch goes in. But in that, there was nothing remotely like that. Surely, I mean, does that actually even for you, you're a tough tough bloke, seem like a like a different planet? What used to go on? Well, it was, wasn't it? I mean, it was a completely, in many ways, it was a very different game. And and I mean, I came into the in, into rugby um, obviously in the in the early nineties in an era when when the, when it was sort of starting already, even at that stage, to 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 move forward in, in terms of cleaning itself up. And and obviously, it's unrecognisable now. But uh, no, I, I consider myself very 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 fortunate when I look back at some of the some of the highlights of of, of some of the games that the, the, the these great guys played in to. Uh, to realise that uh, sometimes the ball was a bit of a distraction for some of them. How horrible was that game? The Canterbury game was just a complete and utter disgrace. New Zealand ought still to be ashamed of it because, and it certainly appeared so at the time, a, a sort of choreographed thing. And if you went to previous tours, you've got to think that they always put you up against a real hard, nasty, nasty side a couple of weeks before the Test match. Yeah. And it was as if, uh, let's go down the route of sorting them out and finding out what they're really all about. And, of course, you had home referees for all the games then. And the guy we had there was the biggest homer you've ever, ever seen. And he just abdicated all responsibility for the game. Mm. And uh, I said at one stage, I'm refereeing the rugby get on with the rest as you will. And Canterbury, I think, were the Ranfurly Shields previous champions before Wellington. They wanted to win it back because if you remember, it was a challenge trophy and you took on challenges. And if you beat the holders, you won. And they were, yeah. and, and, And the three big ones were Wellington, who played good rugby, Canterbury, who played thuggy rugby, and uh, Hawks Bay, uh, mm-hmm. who were, were were pretty thuggish as well. If I, and, I mean, they just systematically went out in that game to soften us up and beat us up. You lost your, both your props for the for the first test match, David. I just ask you, it doesn't follow on what we we we've been saying, but I was just reading this morning about another amazing thing about those two test matches was that they they would arrange warm-up games on the test arena before the match. Well, I'll tell you what, that happened, that started to happen. I didn't realise this until it happened. Before the first test, which was at Dunedin in the South Island, very, very uh, damp, wet, muddy conditions, uh, there were still, they, they called them curtain raisers over there. And there was at least one, maybe two curtain raisers. And that's what it churned the, the pitch up. And uh, I was a, a, a substitute, and I never sat. And I remember thinking, God, I hope I don't get on the pitch <laughs> because it was so muddy. And I never like getting my kit dirty, JT, as you know. <laughs> so you're just coming off a clean kit. Those white, white shorts. <laughs> oh, I like um, the creases still in them. <laughs> you've laid down the law in New Zealand. Um, you're coming into the first test match, and possibly hope is becoming some form of expectation. Uh, the first test match, a sensational win. Second test match, they came back really strongly. John, what uh, what was the feeling then at the end of the second test match? Was it, uh, oh my God, you know, we, they're now coming strong or did you feel still feel you're in, in with a chance? I think, uh, first of all, there was very much, um, oh, here they come. 
and they're coming on very, very strong indeed. He actually got a bang on the head in the game and uh, can't remember too much about the second half, didn't go off or anything. But what I do remember Carwin saying um, afterwards, we came back sort of quite well in the final quarter and played some good attacking rugby. And the first game had been a war of attrition. We absolutely tackled our hearts out. I mean, I can never remember making more tackles in the game than I did in the first test in New Zealand in 71. But in the last quarter, we showed some really good attacking phases and came back into the game. And Carwin, who was in any case, a sort of great psychologist, terrific uh, optimist, um, said, I saw more in that game to actually hearten me for the rest of the tour and make me feel that we can win the series um, than I did at the end of the first test. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Just while Lawrence is here, we, there was another excellent weekends at rugby Lawrence uh, you were at two excellent games and uh, basically we're, we're having a good run in the premiership at the moment Bath and Sale Sale what a great away win for them Bath cannot win at home at the moment yeah I mean it was an extraordinary weekend of of, of club rugby and uh, I, I mean I know that well, I know exactly where you sit on this whole issue of relegation and promotion, James, and you're not going to like what I'm about to tell you, but the reality is that the lack of relegation or the lack of relegation threat has not produced any dull rugby. And, you know, I, I, quite the opposite, in fact. Um, here we are going down the stretch with, with two games to go till the, till the end of the season. You've got a couple of clubs, particularly the likes of Bath and Wasps, who haven't got a huge amount to play for, you would have thought, other than pride. And, and they're going at it. Um, without the threat of relegation. So, so I just think we need to park that particular conversation because all of the romantics who are desperate that, that one club go up and one club go down every season has to recognise that rugby is in a financial mess at the moment and premiership rugby clubs are barely standing still, let alone moving forward. The game has not progressed to any significant degree off or on the field since the advent of professionalism. So I, I was really heartened by what I saw across the weekend. Uh, as you say, Sale Sharks um, winning at the death uh, against against Bath. And, uh, you know, it sounds like they're still playing some of the laws of, uh, of the 1971 Lions tour. There was yellow and red cards everywhere. Uh, <laughs> so, so I think they've got a bit of work to do up at Sale Sharks um, to... Uh, to perhaps turn over some uh, some mindset some mindset issues around uh, what they've been doing for the last ten years, um, and then of course we saw uh, another red card, which is the, the order of the day at, 
at Wasps, uh, but they held on uh, magnificently to finally get over the line against Worcester. And then probably the pick of the, the game so far, Leicester against Harlequins. I mean, it's you know, a great it, was all, game. it was a great game, great weekend for Leicester. You know, for Leicester, full stop as a city, they beat beat my my, my team Chelsea at uh, at Wembley and, and thoroughly deserved to do that. But you know, when when Leicester have wrapped up a bonus point by half time and you got a loose head prop scoring two tries, you know, Ellis Genji was magnificent. You had the kind of the subscripts of uh, of uh, of kind of uh, Marcus Smith, the, the the pretender against the you know the the incumbent George Ford. It was a magnificent game. It sort of set us up really nicely. And, and for those of you who are, who are missing rugby, because it's Monday, there's two more games this evening. Uh, Newcastle against Northampton and Bristol against Gloucester. And, and then again, another one tomorrow night, London Irish against Exeter. And and tonight is a, is a, today's a significant day because it's the first time that fans will be allowed back into the stadiums. So, you know, down at Ashton Gate, Bristol, Gloucester, um, albeit maybe only 25% of the fans, but it's still fans. And, and it's, sure, sure. It, it, it's a wonderful moment in, in life, let alone rugby. JT and David, just before we carry on and just seal off the lines tour, do you, do you, do you love watching the modern game? We know, we know it, how difficult it is. We know that you both, had you been around now, would have been good at it. But it, it, does it still turn you on, David, the modern game? What I like, I was always a, I always felt I was a purist. I love to see individual genius and brilliance. And the game is so fast uh, and well-organised, particularly defences in the modern game, that it's it's very hard for, for players to have the opportunity to express what they can do. It's the players that are in the most ridiculous situation and manage to get out of it and be creative that I, that I would watch. I don't know. I don't know that today's three quarters were any... Um, you see, I'm going to treading dangerously saying this. I'm not sure that today's three quarters are any better than we were. I'll tell you what, I'd love to have been as fit and as well prepared as today's players are. Mm. I think that it would have done our own games um, a, a lot of good. But yet, I still enjoy the spectacle. Games are obviously very, very intense, whether it's in the Premiership or at international level. And it's a, it's, a, it's a great experience, you know, to go to Twickenham. But there's, I'd love to see situations where players, when they are, uh, and the rare occasions when players have the ball in space, mm. I'd like to see them being a bit more creative. Quite often, it seems to me, and I'm exaggerating the point here, that uh, what they're looking um, for, I've talked to Gerald Davis about this at length, our instinct was if we had the ball in hand and we, had, we were faced with a defender on a one-to-one, uh, we, we would do our utmost to avoid the tackle and beat the defender on footwork. Whereas today's players, whether it's forwards or backs, what they see as the way forward is to actually commit the defender mm. and then hopefully keep the ball available. I'm, I'm simplifying it a bit and uh, I'll, I'll get some argument about that, no doubt. But that's the way I see it. It's still a simple game, rugby union. But uh, it, it's made awfully more complicated. The sheer pace of the game, I find simply breathtaking because today's players are so fit. It's unbelievable. If I had my way, if, they, if you were to ask me, is there one law that you would change, if you could, to try and open the game up a bit and make defences more, um, if you like, answerable to their opponents? then it would be to, we would take the line of touchback at least five, maybe 10 metres. So to give um, three-quarter lines a a chance to really seriously run at each other at pace. 
it's far too confrontational now, I think, whether it's backs or forwards. Let's just go back to the lines now. JT, um, third test, obviously, overwhelmingly important. After 15 minutes, I think the Lions are something like 15 points up. Uh, Gareth and Barry John, Gerald Davis had their early say in that game and, and they never caught you. I mean, would, would that, that must have been a sensational feeling during and after. But what was disappointing in a way was we went into our shells a bit then, yes. almost as if we couldn't believe it had happened. And uh, we sort of sat on it a little bit. In the, we didn't score again, if I remember rightly, at we all mm. in the whole game. And although we were never um, really threatened too much by them, the, the best thing about it was this feeling that we had really beaten them, that there was no question of if a kick had gone one way or the other, that we were the side that dominated the game, that we were in charge, and we had actually shown our class. But I think, you know, out of the whole tour, um, although we played some wonderful, wonderful rugby in the provincial games, the one disappointment really was probably going through to the fourth test that we didn't kick on and actually produce better rugby then, mm. because I think we might have actually given them, made it a win. I mean, we couldn't win because Doug Smith had said we were going to draw the last exactly. one. Exactly, so. it had to be a draw. <laughs> David, uh, JT saying you didn't sort of maximise yourself possibly, but surely in the last test match when you walked out there, you must have been just full of nerves because you're on the verge of, of, a, of a history and doing something that had not been done for 120 years. Was it was the tension sort of unbearable? It was. It was very, very tense. Yeah, because we knew we obviously that we only had to draw, as JT said, draw the game to win the series. Um, and I couldn't even remember the last time the Lions drew a Test match. So it it was touch and go um, all the way from the start. That this the, the the score kept changing hands. It wasn't a massive scoring game, uh, but it was very, very tense. And I remember a moment when they scored a try. I think it was it Wayne Cottrell, JT, who scored yeah. Yeah, uh, about yeah. halfway out. And I remember the, the feeling in my stomach at that moment. I mean, stood, stood and watched this, not being, being totally powerless to do anything about it, out on the left wing there. I thought, oh, my God, we're going we're gonna to lose this game. And I, I, I started to get a bit fearful that we might actually lose it. And then JPR saved the day, uh, <laughs> kicked this ridiculous drop goal, <laughs> which he which me, never the just, hardly ever done before. I mean, he was he was a hopeless kicker. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was. He was. That was the only thing that was lacking in his game. He was the world's best, apart from that, not being able to kick the ball, and he freely admitted it. But when, if you remember the situation, when he actually dropped the goal. It was from a wonderful position. He wasn't being challenged and he had time to think what he was going to do. And I remember looking at him thinking, my God, he's going to try a drop goal. But the thing was, that when it went through the post, you know, we all could have hugged him, for God's sake. We didn't, but because uh, we, we didn't do things like that in those days. But if you remember, as he ran back, JT, he, he gave a sort of fist of a signal to the, to the main stand. And we all thought yeah. he was being, oh, that's JPR, the showman totally wrong what he was doing was actually gesticulating to uh, Bob Hiller because Bob had said to him at some point during the tour you only become the complete fullback if you can drop a goal in an international match 
<laughs> you saw most as if he did. That was, that was fullback. Oh, that's right. And he did. It, and I think because he was such an the ultimate competitor, he just had to do it. But it was a wonderful kick. He must have been 40 yards out, JT. Must have. Just ask you um, uh, now about the mystical coach, Calvin James. First of all, Lawrence, you, you would have heard a lot about Calvin and I've heard a lot about him and I still don't quite know what the trick was. Who was the most sort of cerebral coach in your career? The guy who didn't bother shouting and bawling at you and, and being aggressive, but actually was a great coach because of what he thought and what was in his head. Well, listen, I mean, I, I, I couldn't quite believe that Carwin James <clears throat> was the first coach, coach, if you know what I mean, to, to actually mm. visit, be, be appointed on that tour. I mean, the thought of, uh, of the modern day player going away without any any coach <laughs> now would be uh, unheard of. So, uh, I mean, it was just incredible. And, and by the way, just listening to, you know, David and JT talking, you know, just so wonderfully about the line. I mean, it just does. It, it was a crusade, wasn't it, really, rather mm. than a tour. And, yeah. it, and, it, mm. and it stirs the blood even now, just thinking about it. You know, I haven't played for God knows how many years. And well, I think we'd all run out there tomorrow if we, if we, were, if we were transported back to New Zealand. So uh, we mustn't... Uh, we mustn't forget that, but uh, I guess you know. I, listen, I was lucky enough. Warren Gatland is probably one of the one of the very best coaches. He he often gets a bit of a hard time. Not quite sure why, really, because he seems to have won everything everywhere mm. he goes with with all sorts of different teams. But didn't say you know wasn't a shouter, wasn't a screamer, but but like a lot of Kiwis, very shrewd about their understanding of the game, very methodical in, in what he says. And but ultimately, it's the alchemy, isn't it? It's the chemistry between you as players and and the people that are sort of guiding and helping you that, that creates the magic, really. You know, it's that that ability to to challenge each other, to say the things. Ian McGeekin, I mean, when you're talking about alliance, you know, man, I've, I've never heard anyone articulate it better than, than he did, um, what it means to be a British and Irish lion. And, you know, and certainly that tour of 97, the, the, the subsequent documentary, you know, I think the rest of the world got an insight into into what we're talking about, the magic of the British and Irish Lions. And, and I've still got people that come up to me today and say, oh, I watched that I watched that DVD on mm. Living with the Lions. And and those speeches from Telfer and McGeekin were amazing. And I'm sure that they were probably replicated on previous Lions tours by people like Carwin James or or other coaches. You know, it's just just they just get the hairs on the back of your neck, you know, standing on end. JT, uh, what what was the essence of Carwin? Why why was he a great coach? It was um a whole rugby revolution, really. And Carwin was right up at the front of it with John Dawes, who, of course, was the yeah. captain. To have the two of them together was a, a match made in heaven. I mean, it really was. Uh, I mean, going back to what we were talking about before, almost, it was a golden era for British rugby in the sense that we did change the way that uh, the game was played. I mean, there are a few very interesting statistics I was uh, writing something about John Dawes' demise, John his passing, and uh, a bit of eulogy, and thought I'd better check a few of the facts. And Wales, for example, never scored 20 points between 1955 and 1967 in an international match. And it's when you put those things together and then discover that under Carwin's influence, under John Dawes' influence, that became more the norm to score 20 points than not score them. That you realise what a, a golden era that Duckers and I were lucky enough to mm. play in. 
It was a winter. And it went back again. By the 80s, the forwards had taken over. And British rugby was pretty turgid again. Oh, yeah. And you, 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 you had... So Carwin was this perfect person in the right place. And he was a great thinker about the game. He believed, like John Dawes did, that uh, once you had the ball, you did everything to try and create space, as Duckers has said, and get use all your skills really go for spaces not for contact he could be pragmatic but it was as i say really a, a match that uh, the right people coming together at the right time and it was also going back to what lawrence was talking about you know it was a time when the the laws were just about right i think in terms of that balance david um, who were the kind of great players on that tour and maybe the unsung heroes on the tour as well. Because we know Barry John, Gerald Davis, Gareth Edwards, um, uh, yourself. Do, who, were the, who were the unsung heroes? Well, uh, you, you heard me mention um, Bob Hiller, the Harlequins in England, well, former England captain, of course. He was one of them. He and Ray Hopkins, who was the number, number two scrum half to, uh, to Gareth, after having an outstanding... Uh, season uh, at home before the tour those two together were like Morecambe and Wise they not that the the team spirits needed uplifting but those two kept a sense of humor uh, about everything and in a way we looked to them to um, uh, amuse and make us smile and laugh because there were there were times like after the what became known as the Battle of Canterbury that uh, malicious for uh, last provincial match before the first test well you know when they were the opposition set out to try and maim as many of our team as possible we needed some uplifting there and I remember our dear manager Doug Smith on the coach I think well it might have been I think it was him JT who said uh, the king is dead long live the king the contribution that players like Ray McLaughlin although he was a, a test player of course but missed out on the test because of um, the injury he became the uh, the spy, uh, and he would he used to spy on the uh, New Zealand training sessions, wearing dark glasses and his peak cap. Um, <laughs> oh, it's true! It's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And he came back with some very useful information. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so, in a way, although he didn't, his contribution to the tour as a player ended. He he was invaluable with what I think he uh, brought back about New Zealand's uh, potential tactics. Again, my dear old pal, John Spencer. Once uh, Michael Gibson was firmly entrenched as the test, the other test centre, when he'd been picked originally as the number two fly, fly half to Barry John, uh, which it seems unbelievable, just tells you how good Barry John was, because Mike was certainly the, the best all-round player I ever saw. The fact that there were no test, play, there were no test places in the centre, because obviously the skipper mm-hmm. held the other one. People like... John Spencer could have got severely disgruntled over that, but he he didn't. He didn't. They, the management tried to convert him to wing. That didn't work. So he came back from the tour with um, with a reputation he didn't really deserve. But nonetheless, sure. his contribution was very significant. He'd been England's captain in the '71 season, England's centenary, um, <clears throat> so hugely well respected. Um, and everyone felt for him, I think, because there's no way he was going to get in the test team. But nevertheless, he, his contribution as the, uh, the, the midweek 
team player and a captain a few times, as did Bob Miller. You know, that, their contribution was significant to the success and the morale of the, of the whole squad. Each of you were involved in something that had never happened before and has never happened since. No Lions team had ever won down there and no team has won down there since. No British or European team has won the, European, has won the World Cup. I can ask you how it changed you and, and your life. Lawrence, it changed so much, the Rugby World Cup. How did, it, how did it change your life after that? I think in the short term, not a huge amount. I mean, I had a week off, as you might expect. To, as Warren Gatlin said to me, you need a week off to sober up. <laughs> I, said, I, said, I said, well, you never normally give me that a week. You're normally only a few days, to be honest. But uh, I, I, I played, I had a week off. Uh, and I think, it, you know, we, I went up there in that week off. I went up to, to, to parade the World Cup trophy with Johnny Wilkinson around Newcastle's Kingston Park Stadium. So uh, it was hardly a week off, but it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and then, we, you know, I was back playing rugby the following week, you know, and we went on to win the European Cup. And the and the Premiership title with Was, so it was a hell of a year, um, you know, starting with the World Cup. And I mean, naturally, um, obviously, I've, I've, you know, it's a, it's a great day in in, in English and, and world rugby history for England to win a finally win a World Cup and the relief, really, in in, in a way. But obviously, if if we hadn't have won, then you wouldn't be talking to me today, and I wouldn't be a guest on your podcast, really, Jonesy. That's the fact. I'd probably be doing a life You'd sentence. You'd still be on, don't worry. I'd be doing a life sentence for murdering the referee, Andre Watson, I'd imagine. <laughs> JT, you, uh, when you came back, your salary from rugby was exactly the same as it was when, before you just departed. No pounds and no pence. No pay rise. It must have given you, what, confidence in yourself. Uh, and... Um, it must have changed your life. I mean, people you didn't know and never met must have come up to you. And even in an amateur game then, it must have made a difference. Yeah, I mean, it certainly did in that we had been playing rugby solid for a year. So when we came back from the Lions tour in 71, we basically took two or three months off. That was understood. And suddenly we were into, for example, the um, Sportsman of the Year type functions. Various newspapers had them, the BBC had them, and there we were rubbing shoulders with George Best, Bobby Charlton, people like this, and suddenly Barry John was actually in contention for Sportsman of the Year. We were the actual team of the year, yeah. um, and that changed things. We enjoyed and really enjoyed uh, a couple of months of uh, you know living on our laurels and really enjoyed that but then as you say it was back to being a housemaster and a huge comprehensive in Putney <laughs> um, <laughs> you're spot on when you say you sort of gave the confidence and things to do things because I had always imagined myself ending up as a headmaster and it was then various things came out of it that actually I was persuaded to leave teaching for mercenary reasons <laughs> basically <laughs> Uh, I was offered a job with a sports sponsorship company and um, the opening bid, even though I said I'm very vocational about my teaching, was more than double my salary. So I took it. <laughs> and and that, then, that then led on to the journalism and the broadcasting and everything else. So it did. It was life changing. David, uh, sadly for you, when you when you, next time you came on the rugby field, you didn't have Mervyn or... Uh... Gareth Edwards or Barry John or Mike Gibson, but what, what, what was it like for you when you when you came back? 
I mean, it was celebrated richly in England, wasn't it? It, it certainly was. And don't, and don't forget that the, the Lions squad itself was fated at length too, as JT will remember. And the, the one of, an exa- as an example of that, uh, the, uh, m- the mayoress of Merthyr Tidville gave us a reception, uh, which <laughs> was uh, a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> no, it was. It was really. But the other, the thing that I really liked. Have you um, still got your trophy? Well, I certainly have. But what the one thing I do remember is that we got an invitation. It may have been through people like yourself, JT. We got an invitation, uh, an invitation to uh, go to the uh, bottling plant, plant of Gordon's Gin in London. Now that suited me right down to the ground because I was a serious <laughs> gin drinker. I, I, I was. Uh, chairman of the uh, gin school on tour. Fantastic. So at the end of the greatest tour ever, the mayor of Merthyr Tidville and um, and the gin company came to the fore. And basically that's all you got out of it. Guys, it's been amazing to speak to all, all three of you in the same forums. I was just so turned on to rugby by 71 um, and uh, everything that it meant. And it, I just think it... Everyone in the whole game squared their shoulders when, when that happened. Great achievement by a really, really great team and a great bunch of blokes, which big rugby teams tend to be. So I'd really like to thank my three of my heroes, David Duckham, John Taylor and Lawrence Delalio for speaking so well about the, the modern game, the old game and uh, some of the greatest things that have ever happened to British and Irish teams on the rugby field. 